0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Why does God allow bad things to happen? After the earthquake in Haiti, I was circulating through some of our Sunday school classes upstairs. found myself in one class where the teachers kind of playfully asked, is there anybody who has any questions to ask Pastor George while he's with us? And uh, we we were having fun with joking around. And then one of these little children looked up into my face and said, why did God make the earthquake happen in Haiti? And I was not prepared for that question. And, you know, the honest answer is I should have been prepared for that question because I had been thinking about it ever since the reports started coming back. And then the photos started to land. It had been my question. It had been waking me up at night. It had been interrupting my prayers. Why did God allow that to happen? 7.0 magnitude earthquake in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Underneath a city in which 86% of its occupants live in slums. The debris... And rubble from that earthquake, if you put it in shipping containers and put those end-to-end would stretch from London to Beirut. And then most of all, 220,000 people dead. Why? Why would God destroy the world that he died to save? I'm looking down into the face of this child And I'm I'm hoping that if I just pause for another moment, an answer might come to me. So I'm stalling. I'll never forget his eyes. It's such an honest, such an important question. Why would God do this? And at that moment, I knew I had the attention of every single person in that room. All the children, and how often can you say this in one of our children's classes? All the children were looking at my face. All the youth helpers, and all the teachers, and they wanted to know what this child wanted to know, what I wanted to know. And somehow I felt like, because I'm the pastor, I have to answer this question. And so I I said something about God as creator and the natural laws of the physical universe. And as soon as the words left my mouth, I just knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. And I only hope and pray that this child had the good sense to be profoundly disappointed with my answer. (laughs) Because the answer I gave him was really the answer of a deist. That God had created the world like a watch, wound up its mechanism, and then sits back in heaven and just watches helplessly. And I don't believe that. And I hope he doesn't either. But then the question remains, why would God allow this to happen? Well, it's an ancient question. It's not new to you, to me. It's been asked throughout the biblical history and even outside the biblical tradition. Epicurus, in the uh, 300 years before Jesus walked the face of this earth, frames the question the way that most philosophers still pay attention to it. Epicurus says there are three things you just can't have together without having a logical inconsistency. God's love, God's power, and the facts of evil. Just can't have those three things in the same room at the same time. And many great minds have wrestled with this paradox, Epicurus' paradox, as it's called. And they've come up with helpful answers, I think. They've argued alternatively that, on the one hand, God is never the origin of evil. In fact, evil isn't a thing that's created. It's the absence of a thing. It's where there's something that God hasn't created and doesn't intend. Or some have argued that God allows evil for the sake of some greater good. Some have said, on the other hand, God could not create a world with moral good that did not also have moral evil. Some have said there could be no real mutual love in the world if there weren't also the possibility of denying that love. Who would want to live in a world with a controlling God that always imposes his will at every moment? Some of us have been in relationships like that, and we don't want one with God. Or some have said, you know, it just makes no sense to think that every time I I, or another person raises their hand in anger, God would paralyze it at that moment. Others have said that earthquakes and tsunamis are actually a needed part of God's creation. In fact, two UW professors about 10 years ago, a little less than that, wrote a book called Rare Earth. In one of their chapters, they actually argue that earthquakes and tsunamis are necessary for the fine-tuning of the universe that would actually be able to sustain human life. Some have said that to insist on understanding everything, everything that I choose to call evil, is really to insist that I know as much as God knows and really, therefore, to be God, to insist that he run the universe the way I think he should run the universe is to take him off his throne and to step up myself and say, let me do it. I can do it better. All these answers and all these arguments are helpful as far as they go. But I don't think they go far enough. Not for those who are face to face with real suffering. Suffering. Not for the man on his knees holding the lifeless hand of a boy beneath the rubble. No, he is not asking the philosophical question of the problem of evil. He is asking the personal question. The deeply personal question. Why? How do you ask the question? What question are you asking? about the bad things in the world or in your life today. Is there an earthquake in your world? Maybe for you it's just not happened yet, but you begin to hear the dogs barking. Maybe the early warning system is starting to light up in front of you. Or maybe you begin to feel the actual ground shaking and the lights are swaying. Maybe the glass and the windows are already popping in your life. Or maybe you already have that horrible white silt on your face. Perhaps you're even experiencing what it feels like to be buried beneath the rubble. This week, I talked to a grandfather who has in his family a severely autistic child. And he loves this child. It's a beautiful child, but he can see the child is suffering. It's a great family of faith. And out of the pain that this child is experiencing and his parents are experiencing, as they try to love and raise this child, the parents are getting divorced hear this grandfather is looking and going, Why would God allow autism? Why would God allow it to tear a family apart? Let's take a few moments and think about how you and I asked that question. Would you just bow your head quietly and close your eyes and let's bring the question to God in worship? Why does God allow bad things to happen? When you raise that question and you want to look at the Bible, Job is the place to go. The whole theme of the book of Job is that there is no connection between human suffering and divine justice. Job teaches us that we do not live in a hermetically sealed system of rewards and punishments. And to convey that message, here's how the book of Job does it. There are basically 34 chapters of talk about God. That's a lot of talk about God, 34 chapters. And then on either end of those, we have a, 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 a narrative frame. And basically, the purpose of the narrative frame is to let the reader know why it is that Job suffers, or really why it isn't that Job suffers, because there we learn that it's not Job's fault. And then, between those 34 chapters of talking about God and the final uh, bracket of that narrative frame, there is uh, an intrusion. The subject of all the talk shows up within the drama. God speaks for himself, and we have these divine speeches. And after God speaks, this suffering man, Job, says this too wonderful. Now, if you have the book of Job open, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but it might help you to actually look. And uh, you see these words on on page 424, I think it is, of the Pew Bible. It's it's Job 42, uh, verse 3. Too wonderful, things too wonderful for me to speak. And in verse 6, if you read down, you'll see he says, Therefore, I recant and relent. That is a different translation than what's in our version. It's the Jewish Publication Society. Uh, I think it's a better translation, basically because to speak about repentance is really not appropriate for Job. The word isn't repentance per se. Uh, Job, we're told, is righteous and doesn't have anything of which to repent. So I like this better. Therefore, I recant and relent. As one uh, scholar says, it could be translated, I reject what I said. It's a giant retraction. I just want to pull it back in. Too wonderful. What is it that has happened to cause such transformation in Job's attitude at this point? Well, traditionally, oftentimes readers have understood that what makes the change in Job, which gets him to woe is me, to too wonderful, is basically a divine smackdown. And the, the, the God has essentially said to Job, hey, Job, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, huh? Why don't you just stick to stuff you know anything at all about, like boils? Um, uh, You know, uh, you're way above your pay grade with this philosophical stuff. You're out of your league. So just be quiet. But I don't think Job would experience that as too wonderful. Wonderful. You know, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that's a good reading of, of Job, nor do I think it would explain how it is that a man who has literally taken God to court to sue him would suddenly lay down the argument. Job been pressing the case. And just because God says, I'm not going to tell you, do you think Job would really go, OK, the case is closed? No, something else happens. And what I want to suggest to you happens that it transforms Job is that he stops talking about God and he begins to talk with God. That's the moment of transformation for Job. It's a, man, a moment in which God lets Job see his face. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at verse 5 yourself. Here's what Job says. This is the second to last sentence in the whole Bible, in, in, in his speech. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now... My eye sees you. I've heard a lot about you. All this talk for thirty-four chapters, mwah mwah mwah, yada yada yada, but now my eye sees you through the whirlwind in which God speaks in His divine speeches. God somehow gives Job perception of His face, and uh, and He gives him that perception in two ways. One is His face towards creation. Let me just give you a glimpse of this. If you want, you can turn back to the beginning of the divine speeches, which you find in chapter 38. Uh, God says, "Okay, Job, it's time for me to speak. Gird yourself up like a man and listen. And he begins to ask these questions. And traditionally, readers think these questions are all about how powerful God is. But there's more to it than that. He he does say, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? But he goes on. Skip down to verse 7. He says, Uh, When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Do you see the joy in that? All of creation, all of its elements are responding with joy to the creative face of God. Job's getting to overhear what God is saying to creation as he's creating and what creation is saying back to God during this process. And all the heavenly beings, look at the footnote there. If you're reading NRSV, you see a little note there on beings because the Hebrew says, all the sons of God, not talking about people here, talking about the stars. All of creation knows itself as my children, and they shout for joy as I come among them with my creative power. All of creation sings the morning stars. They are no my, they're my children. And verse 8, look, it goes on. This is now about the sea, the next paragraph. Or who shut the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb? Okay, now a moment ago, God was the father of all the stars. Now God is the mother of the sea. You see where it comes from? The sea comes from my womb. When I made the clouds, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling bands. I, I tended to the sea like a mother, swaddling it. And then... Job gets to hear God speaking to the sea in verse 11. And I said, where were you? When I said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stopped. Here God is speaking to the children as a mother speaks to a toddler rambunctiously running around the house. And God says, I will set a boundary for you. I will limit you out of concern. And again and again it goes on. I just Verse 28, God asks Job, has the reign of father Who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? In other words, yes, the rain has a father. It's me. The womb from which the ice forms is my womb. I am the mother. Verse 41, same chapter. Who provides the ravens its prey when its young ones cry to God? And the answer is, I do. When the least element of my creation, Job, suffers in the least way, simply the hunger pangs, the little ravens, To whom do they cry? Me. And who answers? Me. See, it's not that he wants to impress Job with his power. It's that he wants Job to see him in conversation with all creation, rejoicing in the parental, intimate, and nurturing care of God. He sees the face of God. By the way, if you want to learn more about this, and I recommend that you do, there's a a philosopher named Eleanor Stump. And she gives a lecture on, on this interpretation of a brilliant reading of, of the book of Job. And uh, I've asked it to be put on our Web page. So if you go to our website, you can find a link to Eleanor Stump. She's a professor of philosophy at Saint, uh, University of St. Louis. But, but Job doesn't just get to see God's face towards creation. Job gets to see God's face towards himself. Now God turns and looks deep into the eyes of the petitioner. Job himself. And here's the surprise of the book of Job. It's that all of this talk about God would be interrupted by the speech of God and that God would step into the drama. He would come down into time and space and condescend to our own misunderstanding and confusion and alienation and pain and speak to us. He gives the face of God to Job. So Job says, my eyes have seen you. Seen his face. It's certainly an earthquake in the life of a child when his mother takes him to the hospital for a spinal tap. They put him in a strange place on a cold bed and they poke and they prod. And the child will look up at his mother and say, why do you cause me such suffering? Why do you do this to me? And the mother could go to great pains to describe all the facts of the case, to give the facts of meningitis and Uh, the facts of bacteria, white blood cells, protein levels, but all of that would mean so little to a child. What really brings peace to the child is simply the face of the mother. Looking into the eyes of the mother, the child will see it contorted with suffering, his suffering in her face. And more than her experience of suffering, there will be deep in her soul an expression of love that is greater than that pain. Nicholas Walterstorff, the Yale philosopher, lost his 25-year-old son to a climbing accident and couldn't make sense of it. And in his suffering, he asked the question, why? He writes, it is said of God that no one can behold His face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it means that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Because that's the way that God most clearly reveals his love to you and me. It's by showing us his face in Jesus Christ. His son on the cross. Jesus, we know, is the face of God towards us. And when we look at earthquakes and starvation and AIDS and war racked countries and disease and drunk drivers and sterility and failed relationships, we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we find that God has already cried on our behalf. The cry of Job, the cry of humanity, he has taken the bad things into himself, and he's gone down himself with those that we might rise in hope. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Notice here, in Job, God does not answer the philosophical question, but he does respond to the personal, to the deeply personal question in a deeply personal way. He answers the need, not the question. He gives a solution, not an explanation. Because for God, evil is not a philosophical abstract problem. It is an enemy to be confronted. And God has and will continue to confront this enemy. Till all things are renewed in Jesus Christ. What would I say to this child in Sunday school? If God ever gave me a chance to speak to him again. And I pray that he will. I would say... Three things. First of all, God didn't cause the earthquake. Second of all, there are tears on God's face right now. And third of all, somehow, in a way that you and I can't right now understand, God and Jesus Christ is at work to take everything bad and make it good. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we bow now before you in worship we so desperately need to see your face in the face of our Savior Jesus Christ we thank you for who you are we thank you for how you love us even in the midst of our pain and God we thank you for calling us out of our own pain and into the pain of others and so we offer you in this moment our tithes and offerings that you might go with them and through them and by them to give witness to the hope of Jesus Christ around the world. We ask that they go with your blessing and the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. going to show you another face. You may have seen this face on television, or the web. This is a Brian Banks. That's me. That's Brian Banks. I'm up there. Um, Brian, Banks. <laughs> Brian Banks was a 16-year-old young man, Long Beach, California, in high school, football player, when uh, a young girl, young woman, made a false accusation of rape against him. And for the next 10 years of his life, uh, he would walk through hell. And you can bet that Brian Banks asked the question, why did this happen to me? But just recently, Brian Banks has been released from prison because the girl, his accuser, has acknowledged that she did it for money and that he was not guilty and that he did not rape her. And now you see Brian with Pete Carroll at the Seahawks camp. And a number of teams are courting him to potentially be an NFL player. And you go, how did that happen? That's not a bad thing at all. And the remarkable thing about Banks is that he's not bitter. That he's not looking at the past. That he's not pressing charges against this young woman. That he's moving forward. It reminds me of Joseph. The son of Jacob who experiences such horrible suffering. Enslaved. Left for dead. Traded away, accused of rape, spent time in jail. And then at the end of his life, we find him prime minister of Egypt, the Pharaoh's right hand on a throne. And before his brothers, who really are the ones who caused him the pain, he says this. Genesis fifty twenty. even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. And I don't know how that happens, but you and I worship a God who can take something bad and turn it into something good. What about the earthquakes in your life? How is it that we can see the face of Jesus Christ in the midst of what we're going through right now? I want to give you two uh, applications, two ways in which we live the question. And the first one is this worship. I mean, maybe it surprises you, but catch Job's reaction. Ken read it to us earlier in Job chapter 1, verse 20, right after he gets the bad news. It says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Wow! Makes me immediately ask, what is worship? Because... Uh, If we're thinking about worship as, you know, you put on your Sunday best, you kind of clean up your life. You come in here and you try to at least fake a smile and and, or, you know, you you clap your hands and you sing songs until you sing yourself into a good mood. And, you know, we complain about worship and we go, you know, the song didn't work for me. Um, I don't think that's the kind of worship that uh, (laughs) that Job is experiencing right now in his grief. And yet. The narrator tells us his reaction is worship. So what is worship? Worship is claiming the truth. It's claiming the truth about God. And it's nothing if it doesn't call us to come into this place and claim the truth about ourselves, about our world. There's something devastatingly wrong about us and devastatingly wrong about the world. That's the truth about us. But if I can confess that and come before God's presence, I can give him a chance to reveal his face to me and say there's something devastatingly good at work in your life. And The problem is he's got these counselors, these three counselors. And then there's a fourth guy who shows up and they basically have three arguments. One is, Job, you deserve it. You must. And the second is, Job, God's doing this for your own good. He must. And the third is, you don't talk to God that way. And, and, and we understand these arguments. I don't know what it is. As Christians, we feel like we've got to come up to someone and always give them answers. You know, the young adult who just lost her mother does not need me to come alongside and explain it to her. There's something obscene about that. And all of these good answers seem to, while they protect God in the minds of those people who offer them, insulate the same from his grace. And the person who sees God's face is the one who has the honesty to come forward and say, I'm dying here in this pain. And that gives God a chance to step in and speak directly. So worship. And then the second thing is trust. Notice also what Job says. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I love the King James. That's Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because I know something about God that's greater than all of my suffering. I think I know what's good for my life. But I know one who I trust more than myself to tell me, what human flourishing looks like for me. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I know that my Redeemer lives. When he sees his face, things too wonderful. This God of yours can be trusted in the midst of your earthquake. Romans eight twenty eight, a familiar verse. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, you and I can trust this God who is a crucified God, to give us hope and resurrection life. And by the way, when you can trust God in that way, you have the freedom to be a brave person, to have courage to move into the lives of other people who are suffering pain that you can't explain. But with this kind of confidence, you can come alongside and give silent witness to the love of Jesus Christ for somebody else. I want to introduce you to somebody who's been doing that. Some of you know her. Her name is Lori Wheeler. And uh, Lori's written you a little letter in the, uh, in the order of worship this morning. She wants to say something to you. But I wanted her to share a little bit about what she's been going through. Because, Lori, I know the last year has been a hard year for you. And you've got to have been raising this question. Why do bad things happen? What's been going on?
1: Well, in my life, it was more a, a story of just rapid devastation. So 14, 15 months ago, I was living and working as a pastor in Paris, three-bedroom apartment, walk in 10 minutes to the Eiffel Tower, and, um, and then I received a diagnosis of early-stage breast cancer. So next thing I knew, it was rapid, pack things up come home and I was, I was flattened. I remember sending an email to my sister-in-law who's a survivor, breast cancer survivor and saying, Oh my word, I'm mid forties. I'm coming home unemployed. I've got an unfinished thesis. Um, um uh, I'm unmarried and I have breast cancer and just enough money in the bank to cover half a move and, um, and medical expenses. Um, and I felt like I was rebuilding a life midlife just from the rubble, not even from a good place of starting over.
0: So you felt buried, and in the midst of that, I know you've shared, you saw God's face. How did that happen?
1: Well, several ways. A really significant way was through friendships. Um, As several of you know better than I do, cancer is a very intimate enemy. Um, So I needed a very intimate, loving solution and had very loving doctors and caregivers, but also friends and families swarmed around. At, At one point, the diagnostics just kept getting worse. The tumor was too large. We knew we would have to do a mastectomy. And so um, I was just racked with this irrational fear that my life was going to get cut short, that all the pathology was wrong, and that I would have left nothing behind. No children, no career I was particularly pleased with. And and then a whole bunch of girlfriends, Renee Sundberg, pulled together these women from all these phases in my life, and they decided to throw a party before the surgery. And I won't even tell you the inappropriate names we came up with for this party. But we had food, they sang worship songs, uh, they showered me with gifts of things they knew I would need after the surgery, and most importantly, they told stories of blessing in the way that God had blessed them through me. And somewhere in those storytelling, Jesus snuck into that fearful, angry place where I've been fighting him and said, come on, Wheeler, I, I've loved you, and you're worthy not because of what you produce and not length of days. Um, and very significantly, a couple weeks before surgery, that cancer was already defeated.
0: So, Lori, um, y- the session has called you, actually, to join our team as a pastor. Lori is coming to take the position that Dave Rohr left about a year ago this time as the, the, um, dr- the head of our worship team. And uh, when Dave moved over to be teaching pastor, we have four teams here. We organize our elders and our uh, and our, our staff and, and worship team Community team, outreach team, and operations team, and you're going to be heading the team for worship. So tell us a little bit about your vision for worship.
1: Uh, let's see. Well, maybe just quite simply that there's more, that worship should always say there's more. The, the good news for me is thanks be to God. There's a clean bill of health. But the truth is I'm still healing from that past year. And throughout, when I came home to Seattle, I came home to worship here at UPRES. And each week there were stories that there is more. So one week when I was particularly hacked at leaving a bunch of possessions behind, stuff had been broken when I moved and I was living out of boxes. And and then there's a story being told of, the, of a Burmese woman, a pastor's wife, refugee, uh, fled to the U.S. And her story was that with God and Jesus, there's more. Um, there'd be weeks where treatment decisions were just racking me. And I would hear a song, one week in particular, actually it was from Hills Beyond, where the Lord said, there's more, let me have you in this. Um, the stories of Jesus calling Peter back into the waters when I was too scared to think about the energy that pastoring would take. Um, so each Sunday, to testify that there's more and be filled with the Holy Spirit to live out the more in a world that just desperately needs to know that.
0: Thank you, Lori. Let's welcome Lori Wheeler as we stand to to sing our last hymn. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.